Our scripture reading this morning is from Mark 30, 20 through 30. Starting in verse 20. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. So Jesus called them over and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can ever enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly I tell you, People can be forgiven all their sins in every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he had an impure spirit. Well, good morning. Happy New Year. It is good to be with you. We have a fun text this morning. As a high school minister, one of the questions I've gotten over the years is, what is the unforgivable sin and can I commit it? Right? There's a fear associated with this idea of a sin that is unforgivable. But what I've found is I've spent some time with this text is there's actually some other truths going on here that I think actually are more important than that question. Although that question is important, we will address it. I want to break this sermon into three parts. First is this. There are several theories here about who Jesus is. The second is this, we hear from Jesus' lips who he really is. And lastly, what does that mean for us? So we'll start in verse 21. You'll have to excuse me, I'm, my voice is struggling a little bit, so if I uh, need to stop for a drink of water, I'll, uh, I'll pause. Here we go, verse 21. <clears throat> when his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. And in verse 22, and the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. So there are two theories about what's going on with Jesus. The first is that, and keep in mind, this first theory is from his own family, okay? So they've been around Jesus, they know him, and they think he is out of his mind. They think he's crazy. And the second theory is this that he is evil, or that he is associated with the devil, or that he has an impure spirit. So there are these two theories that are trying to deal with something that's happening in the book of Mark. Now, if you know, if you've been following with us, Jesus has made some fairly radical claims so far in the book of Mark. One of those claims is that he claimed to be the son of man. He says, I am the son of man. And that would bring back <clears throat> the figure in Daniel 7, that is the divine figure from heaven, that comes to judge and cleanse the earth at the end of time. To claim you are the son of man is a big claim. And then Jesus has another claim. He says, he is the Lord of the Sabbath. Meaning he is the one who authored the Sabbath. He created the Sabbath for us. And he is the one who instituted it. And lastly, he has said he has the power to forgive sins. Meaning that anyone who has sinned has sinned against him. And that, this is just through Mark 3. Right? Jesus has more things to say that we're going to see in subsequent weeks and what the claims he is making as the coming Messiah. 
And so to try to contextualize this, think about this practically. What if you knew someone in your life, maybe a coworker or a friend, who started making some radical claims? Maybe they said, from the beginning of time, I have always existed. Or I have created the world. I am ultimate reality. I will return at the end of time. You'll probably think this person is crazy. Or you might think they're a liar or a manipulator or trying to start a cult. And this raises the questions that I think the people of the biblical times were considering. The three working theories that that Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or he is who he says he is and he's the Lord. Now, in our post-Christian culture, I think most people, they, they don't go with any of those three. There's actually a fourth, which we'll talk about in a bit. But in other words, they consider him to be a wonderful teacher of love and peace. And while Jesus certainly was a teacher of love and peace, the problem with simply considering him as just a teacher is that he's making these crazy claims. He is claiming to be the son of man. And so in order to claim that and then to be a teacher, there's really a disconnect there. So maybe he was a lunatic or a liar. But there's some problems with that too. You see, what's remarkable is that Jesus didn't start a cult following. There have been leaders throughout time who have claimed uh, messianic claims or have claimed to be divine, but those cults usually fade out pretty quickly. None of them really get off the ground. Nothing compared to the revolution that Jesus started. And here's what's most remarkable about it. You see, Jesus' earliest followers were Jews. And if you understand what Jews, their view of God was a very large view, that God was one, that, that God um, it had this uh, incredible holiness and perfection about them. They wouldn't even utter his name. They wouldn't even write his name down. And this is very different from the perspectives of, say, Eastern cultures who believed um, that God's divine power was in all things, or even in Western cultures that believed that the gods came down uh, sort of flawed beings and partied and, and uh, went on adventures. There's a very different perspective in the world of what God is. The Jews was unique. They believed that God created the world out of nothing. And so the historical message, the question we are left with is what sort of life and character might Jesus Christ have had to convince thousands of Jews to believe something that goes against their belief and worldview? Because the Jews would have been the last people to consider that God came to earth in human form. And yet, we're left with this question. What kind of life did Jesus live? It couldn't have been the life of a liar or a lunatic. Because what they saw was alongside the incredible egocentricity of his messianic claims was the lack of egocentricity and humility of his life on earth. His love for the poor, his love for the marginalized, his love for the suffering. It was his divinity, divinity contrasted with this human humility. And it started a revolution. Now there is a fourth theory. And this is the theory that you're going to hear probably thrown around the most in our post-Christian culture. And that is not that he was a liar, a lunatic, or Lord, but that he is legend. And that theory is simply saying that the, the New Testament Gospels and the real Jesus was, were sort of crafted to sort of create this picture. But the reality was Jesus never claimed to rise from the dead. Jesus never claimed to be God. Right? The New Testament writers were sort of writing it with an agenda to create this religion. 
Therefore, he's not a liar, lunatic, or lord, but he's simply a legend. Now, I think it'd be good for us to just take a quick moment and to poke some holes in that theory as well. Tim Keller, in his book, The Reason for God, gives three reasons why the Gospels could not be legends. The first is this. They were written far too early to be considered legends. Number two, their content was far too counterproductive. And three, their genre is way too detailed. So I want to quickly touch on these real briefly. The first is this. Legends take time to develop. So when you consider the writings of Paul happened 15 to 20 years after the death of Christ, and even the Gospels were written within the lifetime of the eyewitnesses who saw Jesus risen from the dead, then you have to consider that in order for them to get a religion off the ground, you would have to have all the eyewitnesses die in order for you to make up such an incredible story. But think about this. Paul, 15 years after the death of Christ, in a public document writes this, that 500 people witnessed seeing him alive, and then he makes the point to say, and most of whom are still living. Some have passed, some are still sleeping, but most of whom you can walk up to and ask about seeing Jesus alive. It was way too early for these legends to be developed. Number two, their content was too counterproductive. When you consider the brothers of Jesus, you've got James, Joseph, and Simon. James, who was a major leader in the early church. Remember in the beginning of the passage, what happens? His family thinks he's crazy. This is a really weird detail to leave in this narrative, to leave in this story that they considered, his own family considered Jesus to be crazy. It's counterproductive to the agenda that these gospel writers would be wanting to tell this tale about Jesus. It just doesn't quite make sense. Why would Mark keep this in here? If it was a fabricated story, why such a counterproductive detail? And number three, why do the gospel writers include strange, unnecessary details? Now, one example of this is when Jesus is on the boat, right? The storm comes and he falls asleep. And there's a really interesting detail that says, Jesus laid his head on a cushion and fell asleep. Now, on service, that doesn't seem that strange. I mean, they're telling a story. But what's unique about that is those kinds of details normally would have been left out of these kinds of narratives, right? The idea of writing in a descriptive way was something we see in our modern novels, but was not something in the ways they used to write. And so to keep those unnecessary details means that they were probably eyewitness to what was happening. Um, C.S. Lewis writes this, I have been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends and myths all my life. I know what they are like, and I know that none of them are like this. Of this gospel text, there's only two possible views. Either this is reportage or eyewitness account, or else some unknown ancient writer without known predecessors or successors suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern novelistic realistic narrative. In other words, the idea of the novel had yet to exist, and this type of writing doesn't really make sense. And with these examples, I'm giving you one example. This is the tip of the iceberg. If you want to read the book, Reason for God, he provides plenty more. But for the sake of time, let's go back to the passage. In verse 23, so Jesus called over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes him and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come, 
In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. So when Jesus teaches, he's often teaching in, in, in parables. And in this case, he's using these metaphors to sort of describe a scenario where you have this kingdom that is dominated by a strong man. And then he specifies it even more. He says this, this castle, right, that is being held by a strong man. And then he makes the point that general never wins a battle by attacking his own flanks. That's not how you win. It doesn't make sense for, for, for the religious people who are saying that, that he was casting out demons because he had a demon. Like, it's just not logically, it doesn't make any sense. And so what we understand as readers of this text is that the world is in bondage to sin and death and evil forces. We know this because of the fall. And Jesus had the audacity to say that I am stronger than he I am mightier than him. And he is tapping into something so profound. He's saying, I have come that the evil one be tied down and destroyed. Before I am your teacher, I am the divine warrior. And we see this in Genesis 3, right? When paradise is lost and there was the fall and death and evil and anger and violence and sin enter the world. And God, this is this beautiful moment where God looks at the serpent And he gives him a prophecy. And he says, a mightier one than you will come and crush your head. You have triumphed for a moment, but a mightier one than you will come and triumph. Let me get back to the passage of verse 28. Truly I tell you, People can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he had an impure spirit. So here we come to that question. What is the unforgivable sin? You see, Jesus is confronting these claims that they are bringing forth, these accusations that are saying he is evil, saying that he has an impure spirit. And what's interesting about this Right, we can, we can, the text is pretty clear. What is the unforgivable sin? Well, it's attributing the works of the Holy Spirit to the evil one. That's what's happening in this scenario. But it's interesting that Jesus does not necessarily declare the scribes are condemned, but he warns them of the severity of their position. He says, be careful. What you are doing when you say this is, is very, very, very important. And I think what's even more important for us is the controversy over the unforgivable sin, I think it can kind of lead us away from the, actually the main point that Jesus is making here in this episode in Mark 3. You see, Jesus' main point isn't that such a sin is the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Um, that's part of it. That's a thing. But there's an even bigger point he's making, and that is there is such a person as the Holy Spirit. You see, when the charges are brought against Jesus, they're saying, you are doing this thing because of the devil. And Jesus is saying, no, it's through the power of the Holy Spirit that I'm healing people. It is through the power of the Holy Spirit that I'm raising people from the dead. It is the Holy Spirit that he lifts up in this moment. And how remarkable is it that God has left us, not to ourselves in this world with our ups and downs in daily life, but he has given us the guide, the comforter, in the person of the Holy Spirit. And he did this with his full humanity, makes available to us supernatural power by the Spirit. 
We see it in Matthew 12, 28. It is by the spirit of God that I cast out demons. And so when Jesus hears the scribes say, by the prince of demons, he casts out demons, he hears an outrageous attack, not on himself, but on the spirit. And the last word of the story explains it all in Mark 30, 330. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. So I'll ask you this. How much do we, as followers of Jesus, underappreciate the power that is available to us and through us by the Spirit. In closing, I want to look briefly at what I think some of this means for us practically. When Jesus shows up and says, I am the one who has come to bind up the strong man, what he's saying is that these problems will be resolved in me, right? Jesus uh, is the mighty one who is stronger than Satan, is stronger than death, stronger than evil, can raise people from the dead, who touches the leper, feeds the people, right? He is stronger than the forces of evil. And yet, it's his disciples who at the end of his life see Jesus bound to a cross. He is the strong, he is the mighty one who will conquer evil, and yet we have this image of Jesus going to a cross. We don't see him walking to a throne, but walking to a cross. If Jesus had picked up a sword, he would have liberated maybe one people group for a certain amount of time, but he didn't. Instead, we see the judge receiving the divine judgment. And when the Lord of the universe's strength is to be weak in order to save us, that means that he has forever changed what it means to defeat evil. Paul says this in Romans 12. He says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. You see, the Apostle Paul is giving us a blueprint of what it means to confront evil in this world, which is going to feel a little bit unnatural. It's going to feel countercultural, and that's because it is. And it's only through the power of the Spirit that we can live into this new way of seeing and viewing the world. Because the reality is this, when we are wronged, when we are hurt, when someone does something, speaks badly of us, our natural reaction is to want to hurt that person back. Forgiveness is not natural. It's in our human nature, our very nature, not to forgive. I see this all the time in raising two young kids. When one of them does something that hurts the other person's feelings, whether they take a toy car um, or, or whatever that might be, their reaction immediately is to go on the defense and to attack back. They'll hit, they'll punch, they'll do whatever. I didn't teach them to do that, right? This is instinctual. This is something natural about who we are as human beings. We want to see someone else hurt if they hurt us. But Jesus is calling us to something different. He's calling us to respond to evil, not with evil, but with good. And it is only when we truly grasp how we have been freely forgiven by God at a great cost to himself that it should compel us to freely give, freely forgive other people, even if it's at a great cost to us. And here's what I think unforgiveness does to us. I think unforgiveness leads to bitterness. 
I think it erodes our souls. I think it deteriorates our physical bodies and it robs us of joy and contentment. I think it affects us mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and physically. I think this is a scriptural reality, but it's also a scientific reality. There's, in the Stanford Forgiveness Project, they concluded this. Although the act may not come naturally to us, research has shown that learning to forgive lessens the amount of hurt, anger, stress, and depression that people experience. People who learn to forgive also become more hopeful, optimistic, and compassionate. And forgiveness also has physical health benefits. People who learn to forgive report significantly fewer symptoms of stress, such as backache, muscle tension, dizziness, headaches, and upset stomachs. In addition, people report improvements in appetite, sleep patterns, and energy, and general well-being. So we're seeing a physical and spiritual reality at play here. And the Mayo Clinic says the same thing. They said, That forgiveness can lead to healthier relationships, greater spiritual and psychological well-being, less anxiety, less stress, less hostility, lower blood pressure, fewer symptoms of depression, and even a lower risk of alcohol and substance abuse. The truth is unforgiveness, resentment, bitterness, it can destroy us in whole. And so let me ask the question, how could any of us make such a a foolish decision in light of what we know about Scripture, in light of what we know to not forgive. And I thought of a few things. I think for one, you know, it's not wrong for us to long for justice. It's not wrong for us to long for what has been made wrong to be made right. But I do think that when it becomes wrong is is whether or not, we, we make our decision of whether or not we're going to forgive someone based on whether or not they make it right. I had a student years back, who had a really difficult time forgiving their father. And I remember this student shared a lot of details about the last time he saw him in person was after abusing his mom, walking out the door, and it was a really, really painful, painful event to watch that happen. And the only time he ever heard from his dad for the next four years, his entire high school career, was by receiving a birthday present every year. There was a lot of pain there, a lot of hurt, a lot of anger. And I remember one summer uh, at a camp, um, he had heard a message and it had moved him and he came up to me and he says, I, I gotta do something. I just can't keep holding on to this anger. I wanna forgive my dad. So he wrote a letter. He wrote this letter out to his dad, and it was saying, Dad, I forgive you. I know you walked out on our family, and I'm still hurt by it, but I want you to know I'm not going to carry this anymore. I want to let go. Mailed the letter. Didn't hear from his dad for three months. When he got the letter back, it wasn't what he had hoped. The letter was filled with anger. I remember one of the lines he showed me. He said, how dare you think you need to forgive me? What have I done and basically put all the blame on him and his mom. And it was really, really disheartening. But I think we learned something in that moment. Is sometimes forgiveness doesn't always mean that there's going to be immediate reconciliation. Sometimes forgiveness is about you making the first step, even if that first step isn't met with a response that you were hoping for. Sometimes forgiveness is simply beginning the process of letting go and allowing the Holy Spirit to do its work. You see, because what happened to the student is over time, that letter he got back hurt. 
but it began a healing process in him. And you know what? It actually began a healing process in the dad too. Because four years later, sure enough, I heard from the student that that dad showed up at his college graduation. And that relationship began, not right away, but after time and healing began to begin repair. Friends, in the same way that God did not wait for humans to make it right, right, while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. He didn't wait for us to make it right. He made it right. And here's the other piece. I think that uh, sometimes with forgiveness, one of the challenges is that we want to see the other person punished. We want vengeance. We want reciprocity. We want to see the person who hurt us to hurt as well. But the reality is this, by holding on to a grudge, by holding on to resentment, by holding on to bitterness, by having unforgiveness, the only person who's in prison is the one who's holding on to those things. I heard it said this way once, if you have forgiven someone, if you haven't forgiven someone, then they are renting free space in your head. Another way I've heard it said is that not forgiving someone is like eating poison and waiting for the other person to die. Holding on to resentment and unforgiveness slowly erodes the soul. So I'll ask you this. Are you holding any resentment? Maybe a grudge, maybe something somebody said to you or a past hurt that continues to ring in your head. Are you holding on to unforgiveness? In a bit, we're going to take communion together. And I would ask you to wrestle with those questions. Perhaps the Holy Spirit is prompting you to begin that process of healing. Maybe that means forgiving someone in your heart. Maybe it means going up to that person and forgiving them to their face. I don't know what that situation looks like. My prayer is that you would, you would wrestle with that this morning. In closing, friends, I want you to hear the gospel, that you are fully forgiven. All of your sins, which means you have no sin, past, present, or future, that has more power than the cross of Christ. And here's what that means. That means your salvation is not just a past event alone, but that even now Christ is continuing to save you. He didn't forgive your past sins and then is waiting for you to figure out how you're going to make up for your future sins, not hoping that you'll somehow conquer them because he already did. He paid for it all and you are fully forgiven. Next, you are freely forgiven. Here's what that means. You cannot earn the forgiveness of God. There's nothing you can do to earn it. It's a gift. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. You don't earn it. It's been freely given. The last piece is this. You've been fully forgiven. You are freely forgiven. And you are forever forgiven. If any of you are in Christ but struggling today, your walk, your faith has been difficult. Maybe you're wandering or you are far from God. Hear this. You haven't surprised him. You can't surprise him. And he's going to continue to chase you because the power of evil has no power of you if you are in Christ. And so out of the forgiveness that we've received, the gift that we did not earn but has been freely given, may we learn from our Lord how to forgive others and rid ourselves of the resentment and the vengeance and the anger and the things that bind us. Holy Spirit, help us. Let's pray.
Spirit, we ask that you would search our hearts, every part of our being, hearts where sin maybe has crept into our life. Lord, we offer those to you, asking for your forgiveness. We ask, Father, to do a work only that you can do. May we as a church, as a body, as a family, be a family who forgives. Even when it's a a sin against one another, or when we say things we shouldn't say, Lord, may we be quick to forgive and quick to receive forgiveness. May we learn from your beautiful example. May we learn to trust you and give our lives to you. In Jesus' name, amen.